0: Hello, and welcome to Quiddity on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and coming up here in a minute, we're going to have an interview that I conducted with our good friend Adam Andrews from the Center for Lit. Adam came down to North Carolina a few weeks ago for a homeschool convention, and we got to spend some time together. We had lunch and got to hang out a little bit and talk about books. And so we thought, hey, you know what? Let's turn the recording equipment on. Let's let's record this and let other people join the conversation, so to speak. Um, unfortunately, you know, you can only talk back, I guess, through social media or email or whatever. But we're very excited about this conversation. Adam and I discussed a number of topics related to literature, but we started first with a discussion of, of um, some some approaches to teaching literature generally, and then in part two of this episode, um, which will air in a couple of days, we discussed um, some problems with a lot of modern literature, um, with the challenges that come in teaching it, and uh, to what degree we should allow our students to read it, and all that sort of thing. But like I said, first we're going to have a discussion about some more general topics in literature teaching. Uh, let me first introduce Adam uh, in, in here in a second, but first I need to say a quick word from our sponsors. The Circe Institute Podcast Network is brought to you this June by our good friends over at the Institute for Excellence in Writing, uh, good friends of both Andrew, uh, Adam Andrews and the Center for Lit, and we here at Searcy. Um The Institute for Excellence in Writing equips teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. At IEW, it is their privilege to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, r- reading, writing, and thinking. So if you are interested in learning more about IEW and what they do and looking at some of their programs, or even discovering more about Andrew Poudoi's speaking schedule, then you can head over to com to learn more. We're really grateful that... Uh, IEW is partnering with us, making this show possible. Our sponsors play a big role in, in our ongoing ability to produce, you know, hopefully lots and lots of podcasts. And, you know, we want to keep adding shows. We want to keep adding episodes. But to do that, we need partnerships with sponsors and we need to hear from you as listeners. Um, so if you would, head over to iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is you're going to get podcasts from, Uh, you know, Podcast Addict or uh, whatever it is. There's so many different options now. Please head over there. Leave us a review. Leave a starred review, a comment review. Those help the algorithms. I've said it before. They help itunes and whoever else figure out how many people are listening which can help us get on the charts which can help us get sponsors it's this big cycle it's the business side of it i suppose but it also it really does help us and we want feedback we want to hear how we're doing on these shows so uh, please let us know please let us know how we can improve let us know uh, what you like uh, what kind of guests you like to hear from and um, maybe maybe if there's anybody we've never interviewed before that you would you would like to hear from uh, we'd love to hear about that too we're always up for new ideas Uh, But today, in this episode, we're going to have part one of my interview with Adam Andrews from the Center for Lit. Let me tell you a bit about the Center for Lit before we get to that interview. Uh, In 2003, uh, Missy Andrews took a dare. Uh, Missy is Adam's wife. A friend challenged her to show the parents in their homeschool co-op how to teach lit without a college degree. And she accepted. The method she devised became famous as Teaching the Classics, the teacher training seminar that now equips parents and teachers all over the world to pass on the art of reading to their students. Missy and her husband, Adam, founded Center for Lit shortly thereafter and began sharing the simple principles of teaching the classics with parents and teachers at conventions and speaking engagements nationwide. They now offer curriculum materials, online classes, live teacher training, and parent-teacher support networks, all dedicated to helping readers understand and revel in the beauty of classic books. The world's great literature contains the wisdom of the ages, which is a treasure worth seeking. To readers who lack the proper tools, that treasure often remains locked away and hidden from sight. Their mission is to supply you, the treasure seeker, with the right maps and keys. Adam... And his wife run the program, run Center for Lit, but they also have a couple of children involved. So, kind of like what's going on here at Cersei, uh, Center for Lit really is a family-run operation. So, um, it, they're they're doing some really great work. We're really happy to be friends with them, and um, I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So, you know, that's enough introduction for now. Um, let's kick it over to my interview with Adam. Uh, this is part one, and we'll be back with part two uh, in a couple of days. Thanks for listening. All right, so I'm here as promised in the introduction with our friend adam andrews from the center for let adam how's it going welcome to north carolina
1: thanks good to be here appreciate the invite
0: so adam is we are currently actually sitting in our studio our palatial our closet studio (laughs) yeah palatial is a word let's go with palatial i like that (laughs) it's just a good word (laughs) that describes things um and we'll apply it here so we are gonna you know we want to talk about literature which makes sense given that you are the uh the, what are you, the founder, the president, the, the publisher? All of the above. The CEO, the chief, the king? Office boy. And the office boy. You're all of, above, all of the above and all of the below at the Center for Lit. Um, can you, before we get started, tell us a bit about what's going on with the Center for Lit right now in, in, in the Center for Lit universe?
1: Oh, well, a lot of things are going on. We are, uh, as you know, in the midst of convention season and having a great time connecting with homeschool parents and teachers around the country as we get to talk about teaching literature and guiding young minds through the uh, the landscape that is the Western literary tradition. How'd you get into this? I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if I've ever heard that story before. Well, my wife, Missy, and I have been bookworms since, uh, since we were college students together at Hillsdale College in Michigan back in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, we've always loved, always loved books. We've been homeschoolers since the kids were little. We're kind of K through 12 homeschool types. And spent a lot of time in the early years of our um, child-raising career looking for curriculum materials that would help our uh, kids connect with the great books that we had learned to love in our our time as college students. And uh, encountered some disappointment, I think, and some discouragement looking for good materials that would um, teach kids how to read well and understand what the authors are trying to communicate. So we developed some materials ourselves and primarily for use with our own children, which I think is probably how lots of people get started <laughs> yeah. in this in this uh, world. But um, they were real effective and we began to, to spread the word about them to other families as well. So that's kind of how we got into things.
0: So as was the case in my life, your kids were just guinea pigs. Without a doubt. Did you Did you, at what point in developing those resources for your own use with your own kids, did you start to think... Why not make a business out of this?
1: Well, we were actually approached by one of the moms in a homeschool co-op that we were involved in saying, look, literature is something that you guys are really interested in. Can you give us a hand with our own kids? And one of the things they said that I thought was always really interesting is we don't want you to teach our kids for us. We want to do it ourselves. Because that's, that's one of the reasons that we're homeschoolers to begin with. We want to be on the scene when those minds wake up to those great ideas in the right. books. We want to be the the hands on deck. But we need the, those hands need some tools. And what we came up with was an idea of a series of questions that you can ask of any book that you're reading that will mm-hmm. bring the themes of that book to light. And the idea that you don't have to have a deep, profound, long education in the technical aspects of literary interpretation right. in order to uh, bring those themes to the surface... Anybody can do it who's paying attention and has the right tools in their hands. So like kind of the idea
0: that literary interpretation or academic interpretation, shall we say, is like a it's a different thing than just learning how to read well. Like you don't have to being a good reader doesn't necessitate some kind of like academic interpretation. I would
1: definitely say that. In fact, I would say that a high level academic college level literary analysis is really just good reading Applied over a long period of time and that the good reading part is the most important part and that this with your own biases mixed in somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, but this is a really important idea. An author goes to write a work of literature for the purpose of being understood by his readers. He's not just writing for college professors. He's actually writing for his readers. Right. He's writing in their language most of the time with the hope that they will be able to understand him. And so we operate from that assumption that if you sit down and t- take up *Brideshead* Head, Revisited by Evelyn Waugh, he was writing so that you could understand what he's trying to say. Not being intentionally obscure, yeah, yeah. but actually writing to communicate. Like
0: Shakespeare writing these plays that are confounding to so many of us, but they're really written for... People who were sitting in the ground at the at exactly the globe. right.
1: They happened to speak Elizabethan English at the time, so he was yeah. writing in their tongue. Yeah. Or,
0: or Dickens writing serialized novels that were essentially just serialized things in industrial London.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right.
0: Do um. So okay. So you got you got approached about helping develop these resources.
1: Yeah, and one of the things my wife Missy said was. Um, They came to her and said, you know, you you have all this arcane vocabulary of literary analysis and these technical training. Can you pass that stuff along to us? And her first reaction was, well, not really. Your wife's. My my wife's first reaction was, not really. I went to college for that. But her second reaction was, hang on a second. I actually don't think that literary analysis or interpretation is necessarily all that technical. And she started looking at the collection of children's stories that we'd been forming over the course of our parenting career and saw that the basic elements of a great story are present in those very simple children's stories. Actually the techniques of literary interpretation can be learned using a, using stories that are, that are easily accessible by everyone. And so we developed our approach using picture books really. A Bargain for Francis by Russell Hoban, Owl Moon by Jane Yolen, All the Places to Love by Patricia McLaughlin, Caldecott Medal winner type yeah, books, yeah. and found that the, all the principles of great literature are present there, but they have the great advantage of being accessible and easy to understand. And so we found our tool that we were looking for to put power in the hands of regular moms and dads for interpreting literature.
0: So at the risk of giving away trade secrets or asking you to give away trade secrets, say you're doing uh, Owl Moon what were the kind of questions that you were teaching people to ask? Like, can you give us a sampling of something oh, like sure. that? Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: The, um, the the handful of questions that really work very well for any story have to do with the, the structural elements that all stories have in common. The, the terms that are probably familiar to a lot of listeners and parents and teachers. Setting, characters, plot, conflict theme, rising action, climax, denouement, those sorts of things. Simple questions about those structural elements can be answered with respect to any story. So what is the weather like in Owl Moon and why is this important? And Al Moon takes place on a cold winter night where the protagonist is shielded from all of the scary monsters of the dark and all of the cold weather by this close relationship that she has with her father. So the question of what's the weather like and why it's important, or a question about setting, in other words, leads to an analysis of the story's themes pretty quickly. Another question we always ask is, who's the protagonist of this story? Mm -hmm. And what does he want? Why can't he have that thing? And what kind of conflict does this represent? a very simple series of questions that can be answered by kindergartners, first graders, second graders or seniors in high school and adults
0: at what point in a young child's reading or i guess in anybody's reading would you say that themes like the idea of theme should become a key part of our teaching and reading experiences like um, I, I will put it two ways like age wise but then also just in terms of how soon, once you've started reading a book, should you start asking or challenging children to start seeing themes? Or is it like, does it take you, should you give some patience read for a little bit and let them kind of naturally come out?
1: That's a really good question. And there's always a temptation when you've got a method in your hand right. to have your reading and teaching uh, take place in the service of the method. Right. Right. If we're explaining how to do literary analysis and one of the things we talk about is you can uncover the theme of this story. Yeah. It's a great temptation to say the point of this class is for everybody to do the method and uncover the theme of the story. Which I think
0: is how so much of English teaching is done. And that's why and then you have a lot of kids who that doesn't that like scientific approach to literature doesn't I use scientific, you know, I'm using air quotes, um, that doesn't appeal to a lot of kids. No, I
1: think you're right. And, and we always try to, and de-emphasize that, uh, what we're trying to do is teach people how to read carefully and read closely. It turns out that some elements of a method help that to happen, help you teach kids to read closely, but the reading closely is always the goal. And in a young kid, a formal discussion of the theme of the story isn't always helpful or appropriate. It's not time. Yeah. But learning how to read closely is, is, uh, an effective tool for anyone, regardless of their age. I guess what I'd say is that we find that discussions of theme occur naturally as kids are taught to recognize who the main character of the story is, what he's trying to accomplish and why he can't get there. Yeah. So the,
0: they just, it's more organic, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I guess you used the word natural. I had to use a new word. You know, I, I think is the same is, thing that you said.
1: It's a good term <laughs> for it. And we, we're always in, in favor of an organic approach to literature. Here's the reason, and I'll just say this one more yeah, thing. Yeah. Along the lines of the idea that an author writes to be understood, he's also creating a work of art
0: mm-hmm. that
1: he hopes will be um, digested organically and naturally. And it, it actually isn't presented to a reader in all of its various structural components that are supposed to be parsed out and understood separately. It's presented as a whole. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is a story. Mm-hmm. It's not a connection right. of setting and characters and conflict right. and plot. Right. Thinking about those things just helps us see it as a story more clearly. So, you know, have
0: you read An Experiment in Criticism? by C. Oh, Lewis? yeah. yeah so you know how one. he talks in that that book about... The idea that you know the first first thing we have to kind of let a story be what it is. So, how do how do these questions that you're that you're talking about and that you teach and that you um, offer or whatever? How do those play into the idea of just kind of like letting a work of art, in this case, a work of literature, exist for its own sake and just experiencing it? Like, how does that, um, in some way, I'm not gonna say that it seems like. The, the, i'll just put it this way sometimes the challenge of teaching literature as a as a teacher and trying to teach specific things like specific themes and using specific approaches components or whatever yeah, components c- can feel like it's at odds with the idea of just letting it be what it is yeah I see so what you how mean. do you how do you balance that i think probably a lot of teachers feels
1: feel that kind of like a dissonance it. yeah that. great question um I think an analogy from poetry might be helpful here. When you're reading a sonnet, mm-hmm. um, it is a son- it's First of all, it's a poem, mm-hmm. but the, the poet has chosen the sonnet form in order to communicate his idea. Mm-hmm. The sonnet form has some rules that mm-hmm. make it a sonnet. It's mm-hmm. 14 lines mm-hmm. long. It has two ideas, a question couplets and then an answer. So forth, it's got couplets. Yeah. It's got quatrains. It's got a rhyme scheme. He follows those rules on purpose in order to make it a sonnet because the sonnet form is the best... Form for him to express his idea. A novel is the same way. The artist, the the the, the writer, doesn't say, "I have this idea," and he starts writing, and a novel emerges <laughs> um, magically. He goes right. to write a novel on purpose, and a novel contains certain structural elements by definition. And so, in the same way that knowing, recognizing a poem as a sonnet by counting the lines and noticing the two ideas and seeing mm-hmm. the quatrains and the couplets increases our understanding and appreciation of the sonnet. It's very analogous to seeing the relationship between structure and, uh, setting and characters and conflict and plot in a mm-hmm. novel. It deepens our understanding and appreciation of it. Okay. So let me follow up with this
0: then. If we're, I'm just going to use your sonnet, continue with your sonnet analogy there, your sonnet example. If I'm teaching ninth graders about sonnets, or maybe we're reading Shakespeare Okay. or Dunn or someone. Um, Dunn did sonnets, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. My English, my, you know, for a second I was like, wait, did I just have a brain fart on, on the podcast? Um, but okay, so you're reading a Dunn or a Shakespeare sonnet. And so you're teaching, say, 14, 15 year olds. Okay. Um at what point do you introduce the idea that the sonnet has these components to it? Do you I mean are you gonna are you gonna give a lecture? beforehand that says a sonnet has this this and this are you going to set it before them and read it together and then see where the conversation goes and then come to that like use your own expertise as a teacher and your own instincts to introduce that or do you feel like that is that part of preparing them for the experience that you tell them all that ahead of time
1: i've seen teachers be very effective in teaching poetry uh, both ways. Mm-hmm. I myself kind of prefer what I like to call an inductive approach where you begin by reading the poem, assuming no prior knowledge. And by the way, this applies of course to, to stories and novels as well. Right. By, by reading the work, assuming no prior knowledge of its structure or the strictures of that form in that genre, mm-hmm. and then saying, let's try and understand this by looking at its various parts.
0: So do you wait for kids to have confusions and then answer their confusions by introducing them to the components or do you introduce that before they have confusions?
1: Well, I see where you're, I see what you're getting at and I'm not really getting at anything if, I'm just curious if how you, you... <laughs> imagine if you imagine a student that has no prior knowledge of literature uh-huh. that and he, he reads a novel just like he watches a movie, which mm-hmm. is to say sits down on the couch, turns off his mind, lets his lower jaw go slack and lets the movie just happen to him.
0: Yeah. And if he's watching a movie that way, he needs to start watching movies a better way. Exactly right. (laughs) And
1: generally speaking, we read
0: another podcast. We read
1: our stories that way. And um, a little training in what an author is trying to do with the story and how we should read it is appropriate. So, for instance, look, every story has a protagonist. Your job as a reader is to identify that protagonist, figure out what makes him tick, and then follow his career from mm-hmm. beginning to end to see if he's getting what he's after. That is the story the author's trying to tell you. If you're not paying attention to that, you're not paying attention to the author, and mm. you're squandering this opportunity that is rep- represented by this reading of the story. Mm. So I think, uh, to shorten the answer, a little bit of that is absolutely necessary in order to handle an art form properly.
0: And again, I, you said you know what I'm getting at. I'm not trying to be challenging. I'm just <laughs> pursuing, you know, the line of the conversation. Um, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing. Um, I I I've asked a minute a second ago about the idea of answering confusions. Right. For a lot of kids, literature can be very confusing. Yeah. And a lot of books just naturally are confusing. That's kind of the nature of them. That's what makes some great books great. Yes. There is things you have to unravel. <clears throat> um. So my question then is. How do you how do you deal with the challenge of books that are confusing? Mm-hmm. Um, do you rely on the components, the the themes, mm-hmm. those elements, um, or do you just kind of have to wallow
1: in it for a while? <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, at Center for Lit, what we advise parents and teachers to do, especially in the homeschool environment, is to always work. If the if the goal of the lesson is to Pass on the skills of reading well, the skills of literary interpretation. We advise parents always to work with books below the student's reading level so that we, se- we separate out two very difficult tasks. Number one, reading hard books. Mm-hmm. And number two, learning the tools of literary interpretation. Those two tasks should, should be handled separately. While we're learning okay. the tools of good reading, we should be reading easy, easy, easy books. To, to apply the things that you're to learning. To learn the tools, yeah. yeah. The, to learn protagonist and rising action and denouement and how they fit together. We should be reading A Bargain for Francis by Russell Hoban or Al Moon by Jane Yolan, which are not devoid of content or mm-hmm. depth or profundity. Right. They're just accessible. Mm-hmm. And so over the long haul, long experience of knowing how books are put together and discussing them properly – will, I think, take care of a lot of that confusion when it comes time to do Shakespeare and Dickens and Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm.
0: It's like when you're teaching children to write or do math, you start with something simple and you yeah, add you to Yeah, you count
1: it. beans first before you take square roots. Right. Absolutely. Right. At least you're supposed to. <laughs>
0: um, what would you say um, are... What, what habits do all great readers have or exhibit... Are there any particular things that that every great reader, um, in, whether they're interpreting in an academic sense or they're just reading it and uh, allowing the work to be what it is? Like, What are the habits that all great, great readers have?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. I, um, the, the distinction... And do you
0: exhibit these habits?
1: <laughs> do you have these habits yourself? <laughs> I actually, the habit that I'm going to describe to you is one I'm not particularly good at. But it's interesting that you separated those things out, whether you're reading in an academic sense or just letting the book be what it is. Mm-hmm. I would say that the best readers um make no distinction between those two kinds of reading, okay that there is no actual difference in the at the highest level between understanding a book at in its down to its core and letting it be what it is. Those are really kind of the same thing. And the way a reader gets there is he develops this habit above all others, which is to, in the words of C.S. Lewis in an experiment in criticism, get himself out of the way. Mm -hmm. That's what Lewis says. The first demand that any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Stop, look, listen, get yourself out of the way. And, it's, so, it's such a temptation in our world, especially if we're going to art and literature and culture with a worldview in mind, a Christian worldview, for example. It's such a temptation for us to say, I'm going to Christianize everything I read or watch or participate in and put a template over the top of it that is the principles of Christianity. Almost say, like
0: to give yourself permission to read it.
1: Exactly right. And, and Lewis suggests, and I think this is the best habit of good readers, that that's inappropriate when you are actually listening to somebody else's words. I get this idea from the uh, Paul's or not Paul's, but the epistle of James in the New Testament, which says, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak. And I think this is a pretty good literary criticism, actually. Huh. The That's, first yeah. habit of a good reader is to listen to the author. It's somebody else speaking. And just as it would be rude to interrupt him before he's done, if he were live sitting in the what? room with us, <laughs> exactly. It's rude to speak, as it were, before you're done listening. yeah, And I think all readers have the ability, all good readers have the ability to say, Evelyn Waugh, Brideshead Revisited, what's he trying to say? Regardless of what I think about it yet. What I think about it is a a question for another time. In some ways, I think
0: the idea of surrendering to a book um, or getting yourself out of the way, like that's, that's an idea that seems like a great idea, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe not to everybody, but for the sake of conversation, we're going to assume it seems like a great idea. What does that look like practically? Like in terms of the reading experience, what does that mean?
1: Well, at, at well, I, th- I think one of the main things it means is that we think about the, uh, the genre of literature that we're reading. First of all, we think about the structural elements that compose it. We read carefully in the sense that we are formally trying to understand the author. Who is like the questions I've been talking about, Mm -hmm. who is the protagonist? The author has created him on purpose, putting Mm -hmm. him in this situation on purpose. What could the author be trying to say with all of those things? And I guess the habit that I, I want to inculcate in myself more. And I think all good readers should is to Forswear asking the question: What do I think about that? What's my moral, ethical, philosophical judgment on those actions? Mm. That's a question for a later time.
0: So it's less about um, what what do
1: I think about this, and more what do I see? Exactly, that's okay. well put. I would I would say that's a that's well put.
0: Are there are there um, other practical habits that a good writers? I mean, like, not maybe they're not universal, but that you recommend things. I mean. Some people are like big highlighters, um, marking up the books, commonplace books. Um, there's all kinds of different habits that people do. Are there any in particular that you, that you, let's just ask, what do you do? Great question. You know, are I'll, you a, are you a bookmarker? Some people um, are like,
1: I'm not a bookmarker. My, my wife is definitely a bookmarker. She never reads without a pencil in her hand. Uh, I like to read, um, without a pencil in my hand. And I guess one habit that I really like to try and, uh, encourage is to take a book as a unit and read the whole thing from beginning to end before stopping to comment or think or have an opinion or have an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, um, I just finished, uh, Graham Greene's mid 20th century novel, the heart of the matter. I love Graham, Graham Greene. Yeah. Graham Greene's a thought provoking writer and, um, I had some ideas about the book in the middle but consciously said to myself, it's not time for those yet. Let's go all the way to the end and see how he uh, concludes the thing. And I get—I have the analogy that if you were a privilege to be in Leonardo da Vinci's studio when he was in the midst of painting the Mona Lisa, you would wait till he was finished before you went to take it in. Um, you, ha- you don't have the whole thing yet until he's done. And so in terms of practical techniques, if you can read the whole story first before you go back and start to work with it. I have parents ask me this a lot. Look, we're doing the Aeneid, and I'm teaching the Aeneid, and I have the responsibility for taking these kids through a class on the Aeneid over the next 12 weeks. Are you telling me I should not have a discussion or a class with them till they're finished? And my, my, the answer that I really want to give is, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because Virgil didn't mean to be given a class. Virgil was making a work of art, mm-hmm. and he wants you to take it in as a work of art in the same way that a painter or a composer would.
0: Do you have any advice for how that could look? I mean, I hate to just be like focusing on the practical for here for a few minutes, but how could that look in a classroom like that? I mean, would you literally just, would you read it out loud together? Would you take um, three weeks where you, the kid's are doing nothing but reading
1: and then you come back to it later and you spend your class time just reading together? How, what would you do? I, that, the first suggestion is one that I, I make formally all the time. Um, if the students need to have read the book before you start working on it in a classroom environment and um, you're worried that they won't do that, or that there won't be time to do that, then do it in class. Mm-hmm. What better use of class time could there possibly be than reading the Aeneid out loud together? That's a fabulous, true, fabulous thing to do. I
0: mean, or Homer. I mean, Homer, the whole point was, it was just sure. spoken out loud to groups of people.
1: Exactly right. And same, same with Shakespeare, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, Dickens, uh, was a, was an actor himself, and mm-hmm. his novels are maybe not written in order to be read aloud, but they sure read aloud well. Yeah, and
0: they're very theatrical. Yeah, yeah.
1: very theatrical. You've got true, lots a lot of parts of for the students to, to, to play. Right. And to make one other practical suggestion, I don't know how practical we want to get here, but one of the things teachers often ask me is, if we're going to read the whole thing first before we discuss it, what do we do for the first three weeks while they're supposed to be reading such and such, and we can't discuss it yet? And what I like to do is suggest that in the first chunk of a school year, class time be spent on learning the tools of literary analysis with picture books, but
0: things you can do in class, Things you
1: can do in class while at the same time at home, the kids are reading the first uh, full length reading level assignment so that you don't start discussing that reading level assignment until everyone's finished it. And then while they're, while you're discussing that book, At home, they're reading the the next one. one. Okay. Yeah. So you're always doing two things. You're discussing the one you've finished and you're reading the new one. Do you find that that kind of like back and forth confuses kids or is it good for them? I think it's really good for them. Yeah, it's really good for them. And if a book list is constructed well, what they'll find is um, themes and ideas being talked about by both authors at the same time.
0: And they begin to recognize it and what they're reading without even having talked about it.
1: Yeah. And they begin to recognize that literary art is concerned with a finite set of ideas and issues. And authors are all getting at this basically the same questions from different angles.
0: All right, let's shift gears a little bit here for the next few minutes before we head off to, to grab lunch. Uh, what trends, shall we say, or common ex common practices that you see in the way that literature is taught often most drive you up the wall? Is drive you up the wall something you say in Washington State? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know if it's something we say, but I definitely know what you mean. <laughs> uh, I would say very quickly the the number one trend that I that I oppose is, and you can probably guess what well, I'm. I am You do not even disagree.
0: You just oppose. You, yeah, this, you're
1: you're in opposition to this one. You can probably guess what I'm going to say just by the conversation yeah, that we've had yeah. so far. And I
0: figure there's going to be some some we're going to be, uh, you know, covering some some ground we've already know. covered well, here.
1: That was at least a softball question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the um, the assumption that the student uh, is the one who should be creating meaning from the text. And so classroom discussions and assignments are designed to give the student the opportunity to, to respond and evaluate and define the text before him based on his own experience and his own emotional reaction to the story. Right. And I think that is, um, that teaches the students what I believe is a lie about art and really a lie about reality a lie about life, which is the, the lie is that, that reality and truth comes from inside me and the, the proper interpretation of the world comes from inside me, that I actually am the source of knowledge mm. and of wisdom. Mm. When in reality, all those things come to us from outside.
0: What do you think then about like, you know, when, if you go to college, especially the majority of colleges, I don't know how you're experience at Hillsdale was or what your kids experience there was like but I went to a state school and as an English major you know you take these courses in um, I don't care uh, I can't remember what they're called now what they, what they called them at the school that I went to but the, the the whole course is introducing you to all these different approaches to literature I mean that's probably what it was approaches to literature right approaches to literature 101 or whatever <clears throat> and so they're going to you're going to learn about say the new critics mm-hmm. or you're going to learn about different modes of interpretation different Worlds of you know parts of academia, um, and their prophets, their priests, right? Their high priests right. of interpretation, right? And you know, some there's going to be things like what you're describing, where it's what does you interpret it purely through the lens of the reader's experience, right. Or you're interpreting it entirely through um, what we know about the author, <laughs> like the biograph, the biography of the author, and then or you learn to take you know take it at the work for it for itself at face value. Do you think that there's value in learning about all those different modes of interpretation, those approaches to literature, or is that just hogwash and why bother?
1: Well, depending on the level, if you're talking about the college level, I certainly think there's value in knowing the landscape of literary criticism because it's a feature of intellectual history, mm-hmm. which, and, and it's a feature of intellectual history of our own day and age, which makes right. it relevant right. in order to participate in the world. We need to know what's going on, but in terms of which is, you know, which of those approaches I think has merit, I I definitely think that's a set of decisions that has to be made with some principles in mind. Um, For example, authorial intention that I've sort of been assuming all along that when you read a work of literature, you're having a conversation with an author that was trying to say something. And because he is an individual who's trying to say something, then his own biography, his own day and age, the day and age that produced the novel, those are critical components of understanding what he was trying to say.
0: Can I jump in and follow up on that? This is, I asked a similar question earlier about themes and, the, the components of a story. At what point would you introduce that kind of stuff, the authorial, the biography, information on the day and age? Are you going to introduce that ahead of time, or are you going to introduce that as the students are reading and those questions are coming up? Are you going to use it as preparation or to answer questions that they that arise as they're reading?
1: Great question. The um, If you introduce it beforehand, you run the risk of reasoning in a circle when you go to read the story. Hmm. If you hear that um, Jack London, for example, was an Uh, was an atheist evolutionist, then you're going to be primed to find atheistic evolutionism in to build a fire, his famous short story. However, if you wait till the end and you see, you read his short story and you ask certain questions about what are the assumptions of this story about the nature of reality, the nature of man, the nature of God, and you come to some conclusions based on a reading of the story. And then you hear afterwards, it turns out that Jack London was a vocal atheist evolutionist. Mm -hmm. Then you say, aha, aha, It seems like that story is kind of a faithful representation of his worldview. Hmm. And it comes by way of a support to conclusions that you've already drawn based on an honest reading of his story. None of that, by the way, is possible if you approach his story as a mirror for your own views on life and reality. Hmm. Because then you run the risk, if you do that, of of committing the error that C.S. Lewis identifies by only meeting yourself in the things you read. Hmm. And we don't read to do that. We read to meet somebody else.
0: And I I suppose if you are introduced to the, uh, the fact that Jack London was an atheist evolution, uh, atheistic evolutionist, then when you go to read the White Fang or something like that, you're not, if you disagree with that, then you're primed to not like it. Right. You're primed. You're not only you primed to find those things, but you're primed if you disagree with him, to have an opinion about a work that you've never spent any time with.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and there are, um, I wouldn't want to deprive anybody of the experience of reading white Fang.
0: Yeah. Because
1: of a prejudice against atheistic evolutionists.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a great book. Um, what about, what about if you agree though? Like what, I mean, it seems like a lot of times you'll get teachers will, especially in a Christian school, classical school, whatever, especially as you get out of the, ancient works and you get into like say the victorians and beyond you know we all accept like up through shakespeare and everything we should read it that's just you know but then you start getting into later and you start trying to convince students why they should read charles dickens for example or i don't know mark twain or something okay instead of the modern lit. but then you're you find you it feels like oftentimes we start trying to convince our kids that it's our students that it's we should do it because you know we should read Tolkien because he believed the things we believe. Oh, right. So then you're primed. You're told, you're telling the kids, you should be agreeing with this. You should be liking this ahead of time. Is that a simple, you think we should avoid that in the same way that we avoid revealing things about books that we disagree with? Like, As in, do we want to, not only do we not want to warn them of things that maybe they would disagree with, but we want to try to make, make them feel like they should feel a certain way positively
1: about a work. I think so. I mean, I think, I think literature is uh, first and foremost, an art form to um, enliven the soul. And I think the reason we should recommend books to our kids is that they speak eloquently and evocatively about universal ideas that have plagued and troubled mankind from the beginning of time. That's why we read Homer still. That's why we read Shakespeare still. And frankly, that's why we read Dickens still. I think that's why in a hundred years from now, we'll still be reading Fitzgerald or, um, Marilyn Robinson or Harper Lee, because they speak evocatively about things that will still trouble us and still preoccupy us a hundred years from now. And the best way to get your kids to read something that you approve of (laughs) is to read it and say, you guys, this book is wonderful. This book is great. Forget what worldview it comes from. Forget what theological points it makes. Forget how closely it aligns to the sermon I want you to listen to next Sunday. (laughs) This was a fabulous artistic experience. You've got to go see this movie. Like that. Yeah. And I think that's why authors write. A a, a literary artist is not a preacher and he's not writing a sermon unless he is writing a sermon. And you can usually figure out whether he's trying to do that. Harriet Beecher Stowe was writing a sermon Mm, in Uncle Tom's Cabin with the result that in terms of literature, it's kind of second rank Mm -hmm. because the um, Charles Dickens, on the other hand, not nearly as sermonizing. Ernest Hemingway is certainly not. Those are works of art of a different level. And I think the best way to encourage uh, our students to read those is to experience them ourselves as works of art.
0: Mm. And then, so a sense of enthusiasm rather than like trying to just convince them both logically. These are the these are the these are the proofs that support my argument that right. you should let read this book.
1: Right. That Charles Dickens has written a, a novel that creates an obligation in the reader yeah. to go and read it. Yeah. Well, no one's going to like that. But, oh, have you ever read Little Dorrit? Yeah. My word, what an evocative, engrossing story about grace and mercy. You'll love it like that.
0: It strikes me that if we start saying things like, I don't know how you just put it. I mean, you said like 10 seconds ago and I already forgot. But that, that there is a, a sense of obligation. Yeah. That, you know, this is such a good book, we should read it out of a sense of obligation. It, it almost seems like it could put a sort of pressure on... Students to feel a certain way about a book or to do it just because they're supposed to do it.
1: Right. And I and I, and I think in some cases, I mean, the truth is uh, everyone who wants if you want your student to be a um, conversant in the Western tradition and you want to have literature be a part of that, there is a certain obligation to be familiar with the Iliad and the Odyssey there is a certain obligation you pretty right, much need right. to read those same with Shakespeare's Hamlet I think same with Dickens's Great Expectations and Milton's Paradise Lost but that doesn't do us any good doesn't to assign it, it for that yeah. reason it's
0: not a third it's not really gonna like make a 14 year old love it anymore because like historically there's a three century old obligation exactly. a three the, millennium old obligation
1: exactly there are much better reasons to read the Iliad and the Odyssey than you should yeah right yeah
0: yeah exactly all right. Well, we're gonna go grab some lunch now at a local Excellent. at a, a local spot, and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna record part two of this podcast. Um, so, should we go do that?
1: That's good. I'm looking forward to it. All right.